Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. It's a pleasure to be talking today with a person who is a very dear friend of mine, a wonderful church historian and person of the church I've known for so long and worked together with, Dr. John Woodbridge. John, welcome to the Beeson Podcast. Thank you so much, Timothy. It's my pleasure. John Woodbridge is Research Professor of Church History and Christian Thought at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois. Uh, he holds degrees from Northwestern University, from the University of Paris in France. Uh, he has served as a senior editor of Christianity Today. He's written many, many books. He and I work together on a number of different projects. And so um, uh, he's been to Beeson. He's not actually we're, – we're doing this interview by telephone, but he's been to Beeson a number of times, and our folks have always enjoyed uh, the interaction with, with you, John. Now, today, the focus is on a new book that has just come out that you have written, come out from Zondervan. The book is entitled Hitler in the Crosshairs, a GI story of courage and faith. And it's such a fascinating story. I want you to tell us about this book, how you came to write it, and what it's all about. Well, uh, thank you, Timothy. About six years ago, I was watching a CNN uh, broadcast. I saw a runner, and it said that uh, a rifle was up for sale in, here in Illinois from uh, a, um, a soldier who had passed away. But he had picked up the a rifle from the Eagle's Nest down in southern Germany, and uh, it was up for sale. And it was the rifle that allegedly belonged to Adolf Hitler. Now, tell us what the Eagle's Nest is. Some people may not know that. Sure. The Eagle's Nest was a sort of a hideaway place for Hitler down in Bavaria. It was one of his favorite places where he spent a lot of time thinking about what he was doing, spent time with guests and so forth. And at the end of World War II, it was one of the prized goals for the military to try to capture this thing. And the particular soldier whose rifle, who found a rifle of Hitler there, he then put it, it was put up for auction. And I happened to see this on CNN. I'm not a aficionado of weapons, but it, it jogged my mind, and this is sort of a strange thing. I remembered uh, when I was six years old, my father, who was a pastor in Savannah, Georgia, called me up to his office in the manse, the Presbyterian manse, where he was a pastor. And I didn't know if I had done something wrong or not, but he called me in to, to talk with him. I, I had revered him and loved him, but I was a little, you know, a little scared why he was calling me into his office. This is where he wrote his sermons. He said, John, you know, come over to this desk. I want to show you something. And he pulled out some stationery, and I saw the name of Adolf Hitler just pop right off the stationery. It was written in gold. And I thought, wow, I know, even though I was six years old, I knew Adolf Hitler was. This is right after the war mm. in 1947. And then he said, I want to show you something else. This is Hitler's pistol. And it was given to me by a man who broke into Hitler's apartment and was the first American to get to his desk. And he took the pistol, and he his name was Teen Palm. And Now, I, I remember this later, but then seeing the CNN broadcast, I went upstairs and saw my wife. And I said, you know... How in the world did this really happen, that a pistol from Adolf Hitler would end in the home of a Presbyterian minister in Savannah, Georgia? And it was at that time, for the first time, I remember the name of Teen Palm. Honestly, Timothy, I hadn't thought about this since I was a kid. You know, and I don't know how the mind works. It gets jarred by something that you see. 
Now, I want you to stop in a moment and tell us about Teen Palm. Now, what a fascinating name. Why was he called Teen Palm, and how did your father come to know him down in Savannah, Georgia? Well, that's that's really those are those are very good questions. A teen Palm was born in, in Mount Vernon, New York, in 1913. He was not born necessarily into a Christian family, but he was so small uh, that his uh, family gave him the moniker Teen, and so he he was stuck with that for the rest of his life. And he actually liked that name. And Teen was an all-state football player in New York. Uh, he was a t- tremendous crooner. He looked like he had a great future in front of him. He ended up down in North Carolina. Going, but flunked out of school at North Carolina State, and his life started to fall apart. And the way he met my dad was, my father, before being in Savannah, he was a pastor of a Presbyterian church in Salisbury, North Carolina. And for whatever reason, uh, it turns out in God's providence, uh, someone invited Teen to come in to hear my dad lead a Sunday school class. And Teen was absolutely struck by the gospel. And it was in that context, right before World War Two, that teen came to know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, and that's the way the initial uh, contact was made between the two men. Let's just say a word about your father, too, Dr. Charles Woodbridge. Some of us who've studied a little bit of uh, evangelical history will know later in life, after his uh, first encounter with Teen Palm when he was a pastor in North Carolina, then Georgia, he became, a, I believe, an early, if not a founding member of the faculty of Fuller Theological Seminary. Isn't that right? Right. Not exactly the founding member, but Fuller was founded in 47. He became a, a, a church historian at Fuller in 1950. That's correct. Okay. I've known, known about that. Of course, I never met your dad. Mm-hmm. Uh, when did he pass away? In 1995. Yeah. So he had this fascinating story of having Hitler's own pistol in his own belongings. Right. And this you saw when you were just a little fella. Really little fella. Now take us take the story forward from there. You know, you're an excellent, excellent historian. And uh, generally speaking, you do history by planning what you're going to do, but that's not what happened with this situation. I walked into my kitchen and saw my wife, Susan, whom you know, and I said, you know, how, how could this be that a Presbyterian pastor would end up with Hitler's pistol? Mm-hmm. My wife's a better historian than I am. She said, well, you know, you met Teen Palm's daughter up at Camp of the Woods, and that's a camp up in northern New York back in the 1980s, and I had no memory of that whatsoever. And so, but she said, hey, you know what, too, John, I, I have this lady's telephone number. And so I thought, oh, my goodness. So I, I, I dialed the number. I didn't know who the woman was, and I hoped she would pick it up, the phone. And I said, my name is John Woodbridge, and, you know, uh, so forth. Oh, John, so nice to hear from you. And that was a relief to hear her say that. And then she said, you know, it's so wonderful. Your mother and father led my mother and father to the Lord. It's so grateful to hear from you. Yeah. I said, Really? And then I said, you know, it was hard to get to the point, but I did. I said, uh, did did your father ever talk about having Hitler's pistol? She said, no. And then she said, but, you know, my, my mother came to our home, and she brought with her uh, uh, trunk loads of, of correspondence from the war and so forth. Would you like me to look into that correspondence to see if there's any re- reference to the pistol? I said, well, sure would. Well, she did, and then she found correspondence between her mother and father, and my mother and father, where they discussed the pistol. And when that happened, I was hooked because I thought, wow, what a story this is, mm. you know, to try to find out what what in the world happened here. And so that, that's the way the story got launched. So, you know, history is a little bit like uh, being a detective, isn't it? You're, <laughs> you're searching for clues and hints, and uh, so that's what you began to do now with these letters right. from 
actually the wife of Teen Palm, right, that she had uh, been collected by her daughter. Right, and the letters were actually from, uh, there, there were some letters between her and my parents, but also a lot of the letters were right from the war front, uh, from Teen being over in Europe. And so it was a remarkable aperture to follow the story of a, a GI who goes through uh, uh, goes through Europe, and really, as far as I know, he was the only Allied soldier who actually volunteered to go in and take out Hitler. In many regards, there was quite a parallelism mm-hmm. between what he did and the Bin Laden affair, where people went in to take out Bin Laden. Now, one of the fascinating things about the way you wrote this book, I wonder if you'd comment on this, is it's kind of two stories woven into one, uh, or I might say one story on two tracks, because on the one hand, you're telling the story of Teen Palm, this this young GI who becomes a Christian, who gets involved in this plot uh, to find Hitler and take out Hitler in the height of the, the search for him after the war and during, during the final days of the war. But at the same time, all throughout the book, you're telling the story of what actually happened in Germany. I threw myself into reading an awful lot of uh, books on uh, World War II. And what I noticed is that uh, these are wonderful, wonderful books. They're established books. But frequently people tell the story from the point of view of knowing that Hitler killed himself on April 30th, 1945, up in a bunker. But the way the war really unfolded, it wasn't, people didn't know that was going to happen. They didn't even know it did happen. Eisenhower and others really thought that Hitler was going to retreat up into the mountains of Bavaria, uh, and that that's where his last stand was going to be in this, an area called the Redoubt. A military intelligence told uh, Eisenhower that that was the case, and that was one of the reasons Eisenhower did not take the troops and, and head right for Berlin, mm-hmm. because he worked with the premise that unless Hitler was killed, the war would not be over, even if you controlled every part of Germany. And so there was launch at the end of the war, and I didn't know this until we did the research, and you can see it in the newspapers, the greatest manhunt in history, and that was to take out Hitler and to find him, because people didn't know where he was. The Russians looked for him in, in Berlin, and so that was, and Teen happened to be at the front end of the spear to try to get him and volunteered to go in and try to get him. And what we, and what was uncovered, and we just didn't know this, that simultaneously in Munich, Germany, where, where people thought Hitler was, there was a revolt of Germans underneath a man whose name was Rupert Gerngross. And Gerngross launched probably the only successful urban revolt against Hitler during World War II. Mm. And this has took us into new ground. This was in Munich. This is in Munich. So it's following like the White Rose uh, revolution of the students, Sophie Scholl. It's after all of this has happened, there's still this ferment, this resistance kind of on, on the ground and underground, even in Munich. Well, that's exactly right. And, and my colleague, who, for, for whom I'm so grateful, his name is Maurice Posley. He won a Pulitzer Prize in writing, and he did some very heavy lifting in, in uh on the research, Maurice tracked down uh, some of. Uh, he tracked down a man whose name was Jurgen Wittenstein, who lived out in Santa, who lives out in Santa Barbara, and Wittenstein had been a part of the White Rose in 1942-1943. Maurice went and interviewed him, and, you know, and suddenly out pops a story about the revolt in '45 by Gerengross, and then uh, as Mr. Mr. Wittenstein, who's 93 years old or so, was talking to Maurice and said, he said to Maurice, do you know about uh, Gerengross's attempt to assassinate uh, Hitler? Mm. And, you know, Maurice had no idea about that, and so the story started to pile up here of of this Mr. Uh, Gerengross talking about his friend 
Rupert Garen, pardon me, Mr. Wittgenstein, talking about Garengross, who actually had Hitler in the sights of his uh, rifle. Wow, what a story. So in some ways what you've uncovered is, uh, would you call it a kind of revisionist tale on the end of World War II and Hitler's role? How would you talk about it? Well, you know, this is a funny thing. Uh, you know, when you work on a book like this, I got pretty excited about it because I knew this was pretty new stuff. But I didn't, you know, I didn't know, you put a little sign by, you know, the paragraph saying, by the way, this is all new. And then since this is not a field that I had been working in too much beforehand, I went down and, and talked with a professor at Northwestern who's a chair of, uh, has a chair of Holocaust studies, who's a real specialist on Germany, and he confirmed this. He said, John, we, we just don't know this. This is a different way of looking at things. Mm, how about that? Uh, well, it's a fascinating story. Now, there's one other dimension I want you to comment about. Um, I'm fascinated by this character, Teen Palm, yes. this GI who became a Christian. He was an athlete. He was a very handsome, kind of Hollywood sort of figure to look at, everybody said, yes. and uh, became a devout Christian. You can yes. tell it in his letters. I mean, he had, he had more than a casual faith. He yes, loved yes. Jesus Christ. He loved the Bible. And uh, even in Germany, in the midst of the war and all of this, when he was stationed in the city of Bomberg, where I visited, uh, he began to teach us an adult Sunday school class. So this was always on his heart, the spiritual dimension of his life. Yes, you know, Timothy, that, you know, that is exactly right. Uh, sometimes uh, we forget about the power of the gospel. Here was a fellow who was such a good-looking guy, good uh, musician, terrific athlete, but this thrashing around in life. But the power of the gospel just transformed him. But it, it, but in, and as a result, throughout the rest of his days until he died in 1966, he was in the military, and he was on his way up. He would have become another Eisenhower, probably, another major person. But he was a very faithful witness for Jesus Christ, and he didn't push his way onto people. But the, the hundreds, literally hundreds of men in particular, who became Christians due to his witness and the transformation of his life. It's just absolutely stunning, and just a tremendous, you know, another testimony to the power of the gospel. It's amazing. Now, one of the things that you point this out in your book, that there is uh, there is some irony in all of this, in the yeah. fact that Teen Palm becomes a follower of Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, and yet he's involved in a very violent military operation, and I want to I want to read you a quotation. You give this in your book from Teen Palm, talking about why he felt it important as a believer to do what he did. He said this: When evil nations attempt to overrun the world and destroy freedom to worship God, God uses Christians to go to battle and destroy these forces, in order that His word may still be proclaimed. The Lord commanded Christians to be a witness unto him to the uttermost parts of the earth, and I am thankful that being in the army, I have had opportunity to have a part in this great commission, and I want to use the rest of my life, insignificant as it is, to his glory. Wow, what a statement. Now, I'm, I'm thinking of that statement in connection with a figure like Dietrich Bonhoeffer who also became involved in a plot to assassinate Hitler and himself was killed, of course, by the Nazis in a concentration camp at the very end of the war. And he, I think, was was feeling some of the tension that Teen Palm must have felt, but at the end of the day felt that under God, as a believer, this is something that he had to do. Is that right? 
Bonhoeffer is, it was so wonderful in terms of his attempt to figure out how it could be that you would engage in violence even as a Christian. And he remember he said he would he had to think that through and he had just trust trust the Lord's grace that he'd be forgiven if he did something wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, Teen didn't I don't think think as profoundly as as Bonhoeffer did, but Teen was involved in some circumstances where he saw some very, very bad things happen. He he certainly wanted to serve the Lord in the military, uh, but he realized this is it's this is very this is very tough, and uh, and perhaps one of the reasons he didn't talk very much about World War II was he saw such com- such horrible things. But nonetheless, uh, your, the statement he that you read so beautifully is uh, really the way he worked. That he saw himself as a person who was going to be a Christian in the military, and he was, and he ultimately ends up with being honored by the the U.S. military with the Legion of Merit. He becomes one of the most distinguished persons coming out of World War II, actually. And later works in the Pentagon, doesn't he? He works in the Pentagon. He also is involved in the... Uh, this, he's almost like Gump. In 1961, <laughs> when the when the Russians tried to close down the access from, uh, from uh, West Germany to Berlin, you know, uh, Khrushchev tried to force uh, uh, Kennedy to blink, and Kennedy said no, and so... It, troops had to be sent into to uh, Berlin in, in 1961, and of all people, the individual who led those troops in was Teen Palm again. I mean, mm. he just had such faith in the Lord, he, and that's why he was so well-respected in the military. This is a great story you've told here in this book, uh, John. I want to commend everybody uh, to go out and get this book from Zondervan, Hitler in the Crosshairs, A G.I. Story of Courage and Faith. And, you know, uh, while this has a, a great historical resonance, it's a wonderful historical tale, a story, a mystery that you've kind of uncovered, it also has, uh, I think, important contemporary spiritual uh, relevance. Because we uh, today, we're, we, uh, the United States uh, and other countries in the world are also at war. And we have uh, soldiers who are serving, men and women now, serving uh, in Afghanistan and places around the world. That's right. Uh, at Beeson, I know this must be true at Trinity and other seminaries also, a number of our students uh, feel called to military chaplaincy. That's right. And a number of them have gone into very difficult and dangerous situations. We pray for them regularly. Mm-hmm. And uh, they do this, I think, very much like Teen Palm in the sense that they feel this is God's call on their life. Yes. Uh, to be in a difficult place, to be a faithful witness for the gospel, and to do everything they can to advance the cause of Christ, even in that extremely difficult and dangerous role they're called to play. So I think your story has a lot of implications as we think about the world in which we live, uh, the importance of bearing witness to Jesus Christ wherever we are, and how God can use someone just like a G.I. teen palm uh, put him in a situation where being faithful really is going to make a difference. It's a great story. John, thank you so much for sharing this with us today. And well, Timothy, it's my real privilege, and, and you, you summarize things so beautifully. I mean, it's, again, I just would like to reiterate just what a remarkable thing is the power of the gospel, that it could take a guy's life and turn it around, and he could be used, a very humble guy, but could be used in such a wonderful fashion. My guest on the Beeson Podcast today has been Dr. John Woodbridge. He is Research Professor of Church History and Christian Thought at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, a great historian, a great writer, and you'll love this new book that John Woodbridge has written, Hitler in the Crosshairs, A G.I. Story of Courage and Faith. Thank you, John. Thank you so much.
You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.